And when I learned that what I was doing in my head was visualizing space, and that's what architects do, it just clicked. I said, yes, that's what I wanted to do. Of course, I had no notion what people think of women architects or what the world would think or how things would be hard or not hard. You know, everybody, I just choose, chose what appealed to me. And the assumption was I can go all the way just like anyone else, men or women. Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest today on Talk Design is Ritu Sahib. Now Ritu is an architect from New York City. Her company is Sahib Architecture and she's originally from India and has a fascinating story. One of the things that we want to talk about is this regentrification of parts of uh, New York City and also what's happening there with um, conversions of properties, how that's happening, whether it be vertical or whether it be horizontal, um, just how that's happening, the demographics and how they're changing. Ritu, welcome to Talk Design. It is fantastic to have you here. And introduce yourself and then we'll maybe have a first question. Hi, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, I'm Ritu Saheb. We are architects in New York City. Yes, New York is a very vibrant city, which is what makes us us. Uh, our architecture is very rooted in the history of New York and current New York, which is changing even during the COVID times. Uh, as we chatted with Adrian, when he comes visits New York next year, it's going to be a whole different city. So we are thankful to be in this ever-changing city that makes our job as architects very important. Do you know, I think that point around how you said um, it's changing so so dramatically is a fascinating thing. I was um, Yesterday I was talking with some people and they were we were talking about just how business is changing. And how there's no, it's like we've been through a revolution with COVID. There's no going back to what it was. There's only going forward to what it will be. And when we look at this from an architectural point of view and a design point of view, the things are shifting. People's um, lifestyle is what makes all changes, especially in architecture. You know, that's what they either adapt to the architecture there is or the architecture needs to adapt to them. And what we're going through currently with COVID and I say that we're nearly, you know, 10 months into COVID and then we've got what's yet to come because it's not over yet. It's going to be a fascinating shift in how people use their homes and how they use office blocks, how they use cities, um, all these things. So having somebody that's, you know, sitting right in the hub of probably the most vibrant city in the world, um, and certainly one of the most multicultural cities in the world. And it has all these cultures that melt into it, yet people hold on to pieces of that culture. They hold on to their original culture. It doesn't. They don't get to New York and just go, I'm a New Yorker now, and that makes them all something else. They bring that with them, and that's why it's got all these lovely diverse neighborhoods. So you're on the uh, Lower East Side, is that correct? That's correct. I'm on the Lower East Side, right by the East River. Yes. 
awesome. Tell me a bit about your neighborhood and what you've seen that's changed in your neighborhood. Um, probably since you know, the last, maybe go back five years or 10 years and, or, and then just what's happening in relation now to that. Oh gosh, I thought I would get to discuss the history of the neighborhood from 120 years ago. Which go, do it. Go from 120 <laughs> years. That's probably more prevalent. Not as shallow as my question. <laughs> well, I'll touch a little bit just to give you the relevance uh, of uh, Lower East Side. So Lower East Side is where the Ellis Island immigrants, which came in large numbers, arrived. We had the first residential skyscrapers in this neighborhood, which were a measly four story and five stories. So these were cutting edge buildings of 1880s, which later we call them a shabby, they're known as tenement buildings. Uh, so right. these buildings, the tenement buildings, so my neighborhood, Lower East Side being in Manhattan, Manhattan gentrified first and Lower East Side was the ungentrified neighborhood in the 80s. So it started gentrifying in the 80s. So the gentrification- In the 1980s. 1980s. So 100, 100 years on. Correct. It, it really hit its gentrification. That's wow. correct. So, you know, I mean, it was gentrifying slowly in terms of sure. you had fewer li people living in an apartment, but 1980s is when the modern culture started in the Lower East Side. And uh, so the gentrification was almost complete 10 years ago when all these old tenement buildings were converted for private ownership or they had been upgraded in terms of their rental value. So for example, a one bedroom apartment here could be rented for something like 2,500 US dollars per month. Wow. Right, that's Lower East Side. So in the past 10 years, we have had other changes which are historical, which I think will show in the rest of the world. We have had a new development, which is called Essex Crossings. And it is a partnership between the public and the private. So we have about 1,000 units, apartment units, out of which 500 have been set aside for affordable housing, what New York City calls affordable housing. And this is, this is, is something- Is that under 2,500 a month? Some are, but you have a threshold. So yeah, it's, it's very, uh, it's, uh, it's not as affordable as it would seem. So they break it up by AMR or what your median income is. So, a, for example, a family okay. that earns 120000 still could get an affordable housing apartment here. So, yeah, it's, it's very gray, actually. Uh, but it's the yeah, first right. uh, such development, which is a partnership between the private and the public. So I think you're going to see many of these, you know, the rest of the country. So is, it, is, it is New York really being a test case for how that will work? Is that... In this case, I would say that's true because New York, because of the commercial vibrance, you know, there's the demand for these units. So it's not only the apartments, the thousand apartments, but we also have a million square foot of commercial space as in retail and office space. And this is the place where the need is. So where else to test better, but a city where the need exists. So yes, I would say so. Yeah, wow. So, so these buildings or these um, developments, as you say, will have like large retail um, and, and office or whatever service spaces, as well as then they've got residential spaces. And then they've got a real mixed income leveling as well within that. Yes, that's right. That's 
restaurant. So nice. again, nice. one of the first uh, welfare, what we call in US welfare housing was in Lower East Side as well, just because the population has moved that way over the years. Sure. Because this geographical neighborhood is very rich in history, you know, few things tend to happen here. So both of these things that I mentioned, welfare housing, as well as this mixed income, affordable housing, public private partnership development, uh, has happened right here. Yeah, wow. So it's a really innovative place. So it's, uh, as you say, the vibrancy, the innovation and the um, mixed immigrant um, kind of nature that it came from. Is it still quite mixed immigrant? Like, is it, you know, like it I is. remember when I, I moved to London many years ago as a as a 22-year-old or something, um, Everybody from New Zealand and Australia lived in um, uh, Earl's Court. Earl's Court. That was, if you wanted to meet another Australian or New Zealand, you went to Earl's Court. And I remember my girlfriend and I going, we are not living in Earl's Court because we didn't come here to live around Australians and New Zealanders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I see your so point. People, st <laughs> people still come, though, to, um, to the Lower East Side. Like it, it's a, a kind of a first stopping point again, still, is it? Not anymore, uh, unfortunately, no. because it's just too expensive, you know. So if you're a recent immigrant, you just can't afford it. So uh, yeah, it is, yeah. but still a very mixed immigrant neighborhood just because uh, we don't only have private housing as, as an I own my apartment, but we also have what, what I said, welfare housing, which does tend to attract. Uh -huh. Uh, certain sort of immigrant. I wouldn't say all immigrants fall into the category. So people look at me, they want to talk to me in Spanish. I'm in a very Spanish all neighborhood. Right. Uh, this yep. morning, a woman stopped by. We were raking leaves in the park and she didn't speak a word of English. She was Chinese. Yeah, wow. Uh, so we have, I would say, about 40% uh, you know, that are Chinese. Maybe we have another 40% that's Hispanic. And then we'd say 20%. We have, a, we have a very big Jewish, uh, Orthodox yeah. Jewish, not just Jewish, but an Orthodox Jewish, which is a minority population as well. So, yeah, I guess yeah. the white Caucasian, typical American population is less. That, that is true. Cool. So with that, is a lot of the architecture you do in your own neighborhood or how much of it spreads to where? Uh, the architecture that I do is mostly in Brooklyn at this time, just because Manhattan has been done. There's not much yes. to do except for big developments. And I'm currently doing small to mid-sized buildings. Uh, so Brooklyn is right. still changing. Queens has begun to change. So most of the work we have in terms of conversions from one residential type to another, our work is mostly in Brooklyn at this time. Okay. So... Let's go, I'll turn back around on that one. So most of the work that you do is conversions, that because you're not knocking down buildings and building new ones. Um, I've got a really good friend in London um, and he does a lot of that as well. And um, it's, it'd be really interesting for me to make the parallels as you talk. Um, tell me about conversions. Tell me about what's happening with the demographic, um, are people having bigger spaces, smaller spaces? Are they, what's changing in how they're living? So, yeah, very astute, Adrian. Again, once again, you hit the nail on the head by comparing it to London. Yes, the other large-scale city where this is happening is in London. 
so New York City, just because we have been the center of development, we also became the center of regulations, which makes it very difficult to knock down old buildings. Uh, we yes. have, you know, rent control. People have been living in rent stabilized units. You cannot evict them. I mean, there's tons of issues. So to get around it, and we also have uh, people coming into the city still at this time of COVID, there might be a net drain, but people are still coming in. And then we have very sound investment in real estate. So all these things, they bring together the solutions we provide, which has been provided in the city for the last 20 years, which is we convert existing buildings. So we take an existing building, which may have been a single family dwelling townhouse, mm -hmm. and then we convert it into two family if it's possible or into three family if it's possible. So yes, if a building has 5,500 square feet, which was occupied by one family of six, maybe 50 years ago, yeah. now it is converted into three different apartments of maybe two to three people and each occupy 1,200 square feet, which is you know pretty, uh, quite liberal, quite generous for New York City. So, uh -huh. So these neighborhoods in Brooklyn have been gentrifying over the past 20 years. Dumbo was gentrified. It's almost done. Williamsburg was gentrified. Yeah. That's done. We have Greenpoint. We are working in areas like Prospect Heights. So we're working in Bushwick. So the gentrification wave is moving on from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. So what happened in the previous neighborhood? Not only knocking down the buildings and making new big buildings, you know, the existing buildings, yeah. which cannot be knocked down, the homeowners are trying to maximize the value of their property by converting it into more rental units or they'll convert it now and then sell it later. So basically they're trying to raise the value of that property because there is a demand, there's still a demand. There may not be demand for many apartments that you're hearing during COVID time, but in Brooklyn, there is still a very vibrant demand for these apartments that we're doing. So if I'm a landlord and I've got like a, you know, a single dwelling, um, building, which I'm guessing maybe a basement and two stories above that, maybe three. Um, just about all of them have basements, do they? Um, do yes, all of them have basements, but besides basement, we have another level below basement, which we call a cellar. Oh, really? So, yeah. so take me on a journey. <laughs> so you have a cellar, oh. which is completely below grade, completely below ground. And that's usually used for your boilers. Then yes. we have a floor above that, that's a basement, which is also known as the parlor level or the garden level, because it's slightly yes, below level. the street, but you do have yep. windows which look onto the street in the front and the street behind. So these back in the day, they may have not been used for apartment living as a no kitchen was permitted. It was just a storage uh -huh. space in the past. But now with the change of zoning, you can actually convert it into a whole independent apartment previously they may have been a part of a duplex or triplex but now you can take yes. that basement and you can make it an independent unit so that's because of the ch zoning changes which has happened which allows higher density in different neighborhoods so you know our zoning has changed which has made all this possible along with the commercial interest and the population still coming in. sure so an interesting thing there you know when um people who have not visited new york or haven't visited London even. Um, often when you're in London or in New York, you will 
step off the sidewalk and you will climb maybe five or six stairs to the front door. So think of movies that you've seen and they jump out of the cab and they cross the footpath and they go up about five or six stairs and then there's a set of doors and that either takes them into the building and then they disperse from there or usually in the movies it takes them into the ground floor of the home or what we'd call the ground floor, but it's not. Below that is the basement and the basement, as you said, often then leads out to a garden out the back. Um, we would think of it as being absolutely prime, prime real estate here in Australia because you've got the garden as well. And certainly I know when I lived in London, um, I never lived in a basement, but I certainly would always try and get a, a downstairs flat rather than an upstairs flat because I would have some outdoor area. Coming from New Zealand, I grew up you know, in a farming district and stuff like that. So I was used to a fair bit of outdoor area. So yeah, interesting in New York and in Brooklyn, exactly the same kind of setup. But I never realized that there was a, a cellar below. And I say that, I, I never kind of put two and two together, which is interesting. Um, so then you might add on top as well. Yes, so zoning also permits higher buildings. So one yep. thing that we talk about is density as in, so density is determined by number of apartments. You know, let's say each apartment sure. can have three to four people. So initially for building could have two apartments, the zoning change maybe now permits four apartments, maybe even five apartments. And gotcha. then the zoning height limits have changed as well. We do have strict height limits in terms of the suburbs or the boroughs as in Brooklyn. Yeah. And those height limits have changed. Initially, if the building could only be 30 feet high, maybe now it can be 50 feet high, which means you can add, build on two additional floors on top of your existing building. Right. So yeah, you could do right. that. You could add on top. And if your building is underbuilt, meaning that in the rear yard, you could extend it towards the fence while still having a rear yard, then we do that too in certain cases. Okay. And so when doing that, is it often the same person owns the entire building still and then it um, becomes more rental income for them? So they've um, leveraged their land size and their current building to create more income for themselves. Or do they get also, you know, what's the deal? Do they get split off so that people can buy them separately? So you could no. own the middle floor? No, No, it's the first one you said. It's mostly for rental income. You know, uh, New York City is a very high rent city, as in I think two-thirds uh -huh. of our population rents, as opposed to one-third that owns. So, yes. So, usually you have the landlord who lives on one level. You may or may not. Uh, and then uh, you have right. two to three levels which he rents out. So, gotcha. uh, but his plan is when he wants to retire to Florida, you know, 15 years down the road, he can sell the building at a higher value because now he has improved the building. He has built it as, as much as it's allowed to be built. He has yep. improved Under the property. Under current zoning, he's, he's built it right out. Yeah. Correct. And he's improved the property by, so this is not only about additions, but it's also about what goes on inside the building. So not only are sure. we repairing, you know, these are hundred year old buildings, the joists are all buckling this deflection on the floor. So yeah. we fix that. We upgrade the plumbing. You know, you're not going to have plumbing. Of course. Upgraded. We have and the heating. The heating, we change that. We, of course, we provide modern kitchens, which is usually the open type of kitchen with new cabinetry, great appliances. The If the building front, many of these buildings are landmarks, so you have to return them to the state they originally were in. 
but otherwise yeah if the cornices are falling apart we fix that if there was any illegal work done over the hundred years because people tend to change their work without <laughs> asking for permission you know there's all kinds of unsafe conditions created we fix that so that's how we create value in this property by fixing it by upgrading it and by using it to the maximum allowed footprint. right right and when you say that um many buildings you know they'll be uh, like the owner maybe lives there as well it's the majority of your work you know for a landlord that owns a, a single place or they tend to own multiples and you go from one to another to another you know they do three buildings over a period of a few years what what what's that kind of demographic so as of this time our work is divided equally so we are working for a landlord who at this time he started pretty late but he owns about 25 buildings uh, wow. mostly in brooklyn he just started three years ago so they're very aggressive uh, so yep. we are doing quite a few buildings for him. But besides that, the buildings that we are doing individually, they're usually people that own maybe one, maximum two buildings. You know, maybe a house they live in and then the building that yes. they want to fix up, upgrade and rent out. So those are those are small everyday owners just like you and me. Yeah, right, right. Fascinating. That's um, I love the understanding that whole kind of demographic of what happens and then, you know, like, each building would possibly fall under different zoning and have different uh, aspects to it that create different rules to it. Um, I'm going to go right back around to, so what made you do this whole architecture thing? <laughs> what, what, what caused that? Because uh, we know what you're doing now with it. Yes. It's what, what got you started? What was the spark that, um, that created this life? Well, every day I say I'm so blessed to have chosen this profession because I decided on becoming an architect at the age of 16. Uh, and that right. too in a very untraditional place called India, you know, where women aren't really yeah. encouraged or you don't find Actually, women having their own businesses. That's a really interesting point. So before we move off that little point, how, how did that happen? What were you, did you live in a progressive family? What was the, what was the deal there? What hurdles did you jump just being a woman? Um, to do this? So actually going to architectural school, become an architect was no big deal. My mother is a professional herself. Uh, she is actually a criminal lawyer who runs her own practice in India. Wow. Uh, so cool. that part was not considered so bad. But the question is what happens after that? Uh, I suppose I was expected, like most people do in India, that I would you know, join a firm or I would become partners with a male partner or a male patron. Which I didn't do. You'd need a you'd need a man somewhere in there, right? That's right. right? You, that's yeah. right. You would need a brother, father, a husband, or a male partner to yeah. establish a business, which is how it goes in India. Uh, so that wasn't accept wasn't acceptable to me, which is I why I left. But uh, uh, there were so, many other so that, hurdles. Is that why you left, though? That is, I did. that was that, that wasn't the main reason, but it is it is part. It's a it's a part of you know things that I thought were wrong in the Indian society as yeah. it saw me. This was sure. definitely one of them. Uh, That's fascinating. And and to, to really, to change it, the easiest, well, not necessarily the easiest, but one of the easier roads was to escape it. Yes. Rather than, <laughs> yeah. I did. I did, take, I, I did take the easier route. I must say that, you know, I'm sure women in India are fighting to do what I wanted to do 25 years ago. 
good luck to them. Absolutely. I'm sure they will succeed. Um, I think that's really inspirational as well because, yes, you could try and stay there and change it, but that would become your life's work instead of your life's work of giving to others by um, through your architecture. And it it's a really defining point because changing countries is never as it's not like it happens in the movies well it might be in some of the horror movies um, <laughs> it's it's not just an easy thing it's uh, it takes a long time to change to assimilate absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. the difference between a third world country india even though i came from the most modern city mumbai and come to new york you know way ahead a little yeah. different a little different <laughs> definitely a little, a little different. so if i may address your question which we're talking about yeah, how did i sure. get into architecture so um i was telling you uh earlier that i grew up in mumbai and people would be shocked to hear not mumbaiites but other people throughout the world uh i grew up in a one bedroom apartment in mumbai and mm -hmm. there was five of us in a one bedroom apartment and we were by no means poor. I just told you my mother was a criminal lawyer with the old I was business. about to, I was about to ask that as well. So yeah. My dad, he uh, as an engineer, he did very well. So that was a step to upward mobility. So for a long time, actually till I was eighteen, I mm. lived. You know, five of us lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, and then my parents, actually, they were bold enough to move from their city of birth, which is Delhi, which is more traditional, uh -huh. at least we considered it so back in the day. And the difference between Delhi and Mumbai is like, I think, the difference between Washington, D.C. and New York. There's this huge differences. One is the commercial capital. One is the capital of the country. You have small houses in one place. People are very business minded, very practical. The other one, people are more politically oriented. Space is not so much in demand. You can have big houses. So right. from my and one big, bed... Big from a one-bedroom apartment or one-room apartment. No, one bedroom. So, so one bedroom. it was one bedroom, yeah. one living room. Then you have a kitchen. So roughly, I yeah. would say it's maybe, I don't know, 800 square feet, five yeah. people. So it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's probably one-third of what you're living in with a much smaller Ooh, family. I... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate to um, think. <laughs> <laughs> so from Mumbai, when I used to go to Delhi every year uh, to visit my grandparents and the extended families, they lived in huge homes. You know, that was the ancestral home. They were all big. It was amazing. Every person had their own room and then they had a living room and they had the bedrooms and so on. So I yeah. would walk, take this feeling and I would walk with this in my head. I would walk through the rooms experience the rooms way after the experience was over. I guess I was trying to relive that space. So that's when I was very young. Of course, I didn't have the words for it. And when I got older and I was considering different professions and in India and Mumbai, and again, coming from a family, everyone of us has a career, uh, we decide rather early on. And when I yeah. learned that what I was doing in my head was visualizing space, and that's uh -huh. what architects do. It just clicked. I said, yes, that's what I wanted to do. Of course, I had no notion what people think of women architects or what the world would think or how things would be hard or not hard. You know, everybody, I just choose, chose what appealed to me. And the assumption was I can go all the way just like anyone else, men or women. That, that is a wonderful little point <laughs> there. You chose something that you were passionate about. 
um, or that you felt was your fit, like it, it lit you up, it, it, you belonged to it and it belonged to you. And rather than stepping back into a society where it would not be acceptable or whatever, in your head you just stayed where you needed to be Yes. and then overcame the obstacles as you went. And one of them was moving, you know, leaving your country yes. as well. If you were to return to India now, would that be a different, would it be substantially different? Would you have to have a male business partner um, now? What would be the go? Well, since I've already proven myself in the U.S., uh, I don't think I would be required at this point. Uh, but okay. if I were younger, then I think that's an expectation. I think the Indian culture says if you're married, if you have a child, you know, you have gained wisdom. And I think the uh, the restrictions start reducing as you perform those duties as a man or a woman. So, you know, right. I've, I've fulfilled many of those supposed duties, not from a sense of duty, but it's part of life. You know, I got married, <laughs> I had a child and so on. So I think... So, yeah, because you chose to, not to get the, not to tick those off on your resume. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah, at this point, I don't think so. And besides, you know, I've learned the skills. I, I've learned the skills. I've done it in the yeah, US without any help. I can do it in India with no one's help. Uh, so yeah. uh, I wouldn't be expecting. And India would have progressed a fair bit since you left. You've been in the States around 24 years, you were telling me earlier. And so India would have, um, in its cultural attitudes, would have shifted somewhat in that time too. It has. It has shifted tremendously. I'm very happy to see that. So even back in my day when I graduated from architectural school, we had 60% women graduates in architectural college. Wow. Except very few of them actually went ahead and did, you know, stayed in the business of architecture, architecture. or had any business sort of. Many of them decided to uh, become housewives, which was their choice. But I think now it will be a little different. You may, you may still have 60% women in the architecture schools, and I think they will probably choose to stick to a profession. And hopefully that would be architecture. Yeah, fantastic. That's interesting. It's, I find it fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating. Um, so as a child, you'd map and visualize homes in your head. When did you get to the stage once you, maybe it was when you were studying, I'm not sure, when you were mapping new spaces that didn't exist yet? So that was when the first year of architecture school, which was uh, at the age of 18. So right. that was our first project. There's uh, this great place called Van Stand in Mumbai, and we were supposed to design a restaurant, a cafe, right on Van Stand, which is a hilly area, which is visible from 20 miles radius. And it's, yeah. it's an iconic spot. I believe they have a five-star hotel there now. But this was our site. So that was the first time, you know, we designed. Of course, it felt so real. It's like, I am designing this cafe and it's going to end up right there in bandstand. People are going to look at it and people are going to enjoy this. So, yeah, so that was first year of architecture school at age of 18. Right. Because one of the things with um, mapping, you know, or imagining, I'd, I'd call it mapping homes um, internally. And I, I know a lot of architects who start their journey externally and then they fit the rooms into the external shape that they're going to make. And then I know others that start internally and they've still got an external, um, well, not always, but they've usually got some external parameter that's holding them, you know, whether it's regulations or sizes of things or how close to boundaries they can be. Um, 
to suddenly actually go from, uh, you know, you've mapped these houses internally in your head to being externally driven where somebody's going to be looking at it from the outside and um, what happens outside becomes part of the story of inside, whether that's uh, congruent with what the outside and the inside look like similarly or whether it's a shock, whether it's, you know, I never expected this when you go through the door and both happen a lot. Both, uh, So I find that an interesting journey, like that whole piece of A, how is it fitting with its environment, but also in the sense of a cafe, how does it... Um, how does it belong as a commercial space? Yes. And, uh, and it's got to be a magnet as opposed to just a box or yes. just a, yeah. Yeah, so I think you're also referring uh, slightly to the age-old debate of form, form follows function or form versus function. You know, When you look at it <laughs> and you enter inside, is it the same thing? Which one comes first? Uh, yeah. So the chicken or the that's egg. That's right, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> That's right. It could be either. Yeah. It could be either. So. <laughs> At, yes, and and interestingly, like the chicken and the egg, they're a blend. That, that there's never a chicken. Yes. Unless the egg's made You're right. Absolutely right about that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, and the same with architecture. It's um, you never get it. You never get the building unless there's the blend. Unless it's that tension between the two and that brings it all together. Yes. And you know, you have a client which brings that. It, brings another mix to the uh, yes. to the yes. to the egg or the chicken yeah um so new york city you arrive and you were telling me earlier you basically had to do your study again well not your study your exams again you already knew how to do what you were doing or about to embark on there but um tell me about that about just the change in going from Mumbai to New York as an architect? So my journey was actually much longer uh, than we discussed. So I came to New York. I came to New York as a tourist, which is very unusual. I found a job in an architecture firm. Then, of course, I got my work visa and so on. And so I came in 1996, fast forward to 2000, and I dropped the architecture profession. For a few years i established uh -huh. another company nothing to do with architecture gave me an opportunity to be an entrepreneur gave me an opportunity to marry gave me an opportunity to have a child which i think many women have to choose between the profession and yes. motherhood so i was doing yes. both uh, but in a different profession as soon as my child was five i decided to get back into architecture which unfortunately was 2008 and the crash of the entire mm -hmm. world or the economy of the US. Yeah. Uh, but that's when I got back in. So yes, yeah, so what I had to do to become a licensed architect in the US was my degree was recognized. Uh, yes. My license was sort of recognized, but I was asked to do internship, for, which is you know working on other licensed architect for a much longer period than someone who had education in this country would have. So okay. I did that. I worked uh, as an independent entity under various great architects who mentored me, taught me everything I know. And then I appeared for the exam all over again to get licensed in the U.S. So I think the exams at that point were about 30 hours and they were like seven different subjects. Uh, wow. So, yeah. yeah, so it was all from scratch, but I knew that 
And besides, you know, don't forget this building style in India is very different than what we have in New York. Uh, of course, like way different, <laughs> way different. I, I designed a house in India uh, a few years ago, and when um, when I was getting photographs of, it, I'm going, you what? That, that you know, I mean, the the concrete was going up in buckets, up yes. ladders, still, and the scaffolding uh, or the the formwork that was holding it up underneath was cut off pieces of tree. Now. You know, like, I mean, not saying anything wrong with any of that. It's like going to Hong Kong and they've got, you know, scaffold out of bamboo. Um, but just you suddenly go and you rewind back to, oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So I had to so, yes. come up from that. I had to get on with the modern world. You know, in India, we didn't have to think about heating and cooling. The plumbing was a piece of cake. It's a PVC pipe. It's a concrete yeah. structure, which is far easier to do, do deal with. But New York City, we have wood, we have steel, we have masonry, as in we have brick blocks, we have concrete blocks. Then we have composites of all of this. We have insulation, we have heating, we have cooling, we have environmental laws. There's a lot of stuff. So yeah, I had to learn all that from scratch. <laughs> besides, So that's what the internship was all about, which is you know working on the other licensed architects. Uh, yes, it was and a that- process. I was going to say, and in that, yes, like you could have um, probably spent 30 years trying to work it out yourself, but in an internship, you actually get the benefit of somebody else's um, history and and brain and mind and how they've used all those things over those years. That's right. So, yeah, so it was more efficient. And I think in the U.S. we have that system where you work under, it goes back to the old Florentine Mm. system, you know, where you work Mm. under the master craftsman. So I'm not really working on site, which I did actually, but uh, I am working in an office and I'm going through all the different phases of building design yeah. from interviewing a client to pre-design to zoning to post-construction and post-occupancy. So uh, yeah. yeah, and after that appeared for the exams, but my vision was there. I knew no matter how long it took. So I was in a hurry to you know, have a family, have other things in life. Yeah which I got out of the way. And now my daughter is in college, leaving me with a lot of time to really focus on the next step, which is, you know, post-COVID New York. There's a lot of stuff coming. So yeah, I did Fantastic. I did reverse of what other women would probably do, I guess. Is your daughter following in your footsteps? Is she uh, in the, <laughs> Kind the of, kind of, yes. Oh, really? When she was little, I would give her the drafting paper. She would make books out of it. I let her design a whole room. It's all black, her bedroom, she measured her furniture. So she is specializing. She's actually going to the Royal Welsh College of Drama in Cardiff. And she's right there at this time. And she is studying theater design. But so it is, while I'm doing the bigger building, she's focusing on the theater design and she wants to specialize in lighting for theater design. So yes, it is. Oh, wow. I think I might have been, I might have influenced her. You may have you may have just uh, kind of your DNA dropped in there, which is lovely. Yeah. Um. So she's in Cardiff from Wales. That's correct. Oh, it'd yeah. be interesting to see if she ever gets hold of their dialect. I yeah. Used to, I used to spend a lot of time around uh, Wales. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. They have the longest city name, I guess, which was kind of touristy, oh, long, 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 whatever. Yeah. So yes. So. And when you hear somebody speak uh, Welsh, it's like what, you know, like it's. Uh, it is pretty crazy, but a fabulous um, part of England as well, you know, part of, or of Great Britain, I should say, more than England, it's not England. Um, yeah, fabulous part of, of um, 
Great Britain. Yes. You know, especially I used to spend a bit of time around a place called Mumbles, mm -hmm. which is um, not far from Cardiff, really. But I used to go surfing there. Wow. So down on the Welsh coast. Um, yeah, I used to live in Manchester. And, oh, cool. Uh, used to, I used, yeah, exactly. I used to, well, I used to go there in another place called Hell's Gate, which was actually the top of Wales. So you could drive into the top of Wales. But then I used to do a lot of work uh, around Cardiff, around that area. And um, when I'd go there, I'd take a surfboard and go wow. surfing. There's some beautiful beaches and coastline through there as well. Yeah, so last oh, year when cool. we were picking out the college for her, we did a whole car tour of uh, Great Britain, United Kingdom, actually, I must say. Um, and Cardiff, I saw what I'm seeing in New York. So they have townhouses, which was the worker housing, mm -hmm. and they are being developed. You know, they're actually being renovated. And I think an old typical townhouse might be converted to five apartments. It's mostly for yeah. students from Cardiff University. I think they're 30,000. That's the biggest mm -hmm. game in town in Cardiff. But it's amazing to see what's happening in New York. Like we talk about London, it's happening to Cardiff on a much smaller scale as well. I I, I remember it happening many years ago. Um, I've lived in the UK a few times, um, but probably, you know, sort of nine, ten years ago, maybe 11 years ago, it was happening in Glasgow mm -hmm. as yes. well. Glasgow we visited time. and I think Glasgow is all set now. <laughs> there was a lot of construction yeah, in the event is. last year. Yeah, there was, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you see, um, if you were predicting the future for New York, um, what do you see? Like, and you said before about how, you know, Dumbo's done and then you were like, Queens is like happening. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about that prediction of what will happen there and especially how maybe how the COVID, um, has changed that and, and will change that. Sure. So, New York City was already in a path to changing. You know, we said our buildings are old, they're 120 years old. So there's only two options. Either one, you demolish them because they will collapse naturally, or you fix them, prop them up, so they will live for maybe another 50 or 60 years. Uh, mm -hmm. So all this change was going on thanks to the 90s. And currently during COVID, there are great deals to be had. So as we discussed, we have a lot of business because people who had postponed their projects as in conversion projects now have more time to think about it. Their money hasn't evaporated, so they're putting money into these jobs. Besides that, there are great deals to be had because the property price is temporarily dipping a little bit in some areas. Okay. So people are rushing yeah. out and buying new properties as for investment. So people wow. aren't too nervous for us New Yorkers who, you know, I'm very, very bullish. And I think mm -hmm. the trend will continue. Uh, mm -hmm. So of late, what has happened during COVID are two things. One is that our city is being used differently. We have, just like India, from being inside the building, and in India, there are fewer buildings. So we live our city on the sidewalks. We live our life yep. on the sidewalks, in the parks, we have restaurants outside. Now for Christmas, the retail is going to be set outside the stores on the sidewalks. So we're living a life the kind of life I was used to in Mumbai, you know, all the shopping was outdoors just because there wasn't too much money yeah. to make buildings. So that's one. And the second big change is that in spite of having many different ways to safely work out of office, people aren't visiting the offices. So uh -huh. last year uh, we had, I think we used to have on a normal basis, 2 million office workers come into Manhattan to use our office buildings. 
but that's not happening right. anymore because people don't want to use public transportation. People are afraid of taking, you know, the elevator up to their floor and bumping. So everybody's working out of home. So these offices, they have current occupancy of just 10 to 15%. Wow. So something's got wow. to give, something's going to happen. Even after the vaccination, if the office workers come back, which I don't see happening for some time because we, everybody's naturally nervous and more so in New York, where we were hit really hard by it. So there may be changes, which actually started pre-COVID, but COVID has consolidated these changes, you know, working out of Zoom, working from other places or more companies, gentrification. So uh, I see a lot of, I saw, foresaw a lot of changes pre-COVID, but I think COVID has made more, is going to make more things happen. So that's hopefully, you know, the administration of the city will continue to keep it safe at the moment. There are a few things you might be hearing about violence in New York, but uh, we are due for a change in mayor next year. And if they're able to maintain the law and order, which is what all New Yorkers are going for, I think we'll continue to grow as possible. Oh, New York will regardless. I mean, I remember you were saying earlier about in the 80s in New York and in the 80s in New York, it was one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Like um, I used to travel there um in the probably about the mid 80s mid to late 80s and um i didn't have one friend in new york who hadn't been mugged Uh, you know those were kind of semi-lawless days in new york but those days are long behind you for new york um that's right i mean you're not going to descend into that kind of lack of law and order because i think there were other factors in that time and inflation yeah, was one, uh, yeah. you know, so there were many other things. And I think, In- interest rates of yes, 24%. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, um, and there was a, yeah, it, it was just a different world back yes. then. And, and this is what's exciting about what um, COVID will bring. It's a different world. We get, this is like a, a revolution or a change, a major change. And anything that was is up for question. And, Anything that is 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 up for question. Yes. yes. And new habits, new forms of the way we live, new sort of understandings of how the world around us operates. Absolutely, um, I think you put it very it's, well. It's yes. exciting. It is. Yeah. It is exciting. Yeah. Very exciting time, and you know, like for people like us, we get to shape a part of that. Um, that will. We're, we're at the first steps of a, of a, like I say, a revolution of something that's changing and it's changing quickly, but it will still just take time, you know, but we get, we actually get to be part of the, 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 the people that change that, that set up what the new is and the generations like your daughter. And I've got an um, 18 year old daughter as well that are coming through and, and you go, wow, these things, they're, they're going to be a big part of shaping a new future. Absolutely. A new understanding. Absolutely. Yeah. I am so excited. I was excited for New York's future last year. And this year I see changes due. And yes, so besides the techies who, you know, normally take the limelight or have been recently, sure. the architects are going to be at the forefront and he- helping us define our built space. Yes. As we get stronger and stronger on health and wellness being our spaces as well, like right from materials to how they everything, everything about health and wellness, because something like COVID brings that to the forefront. Um, architecture's in its own revolution as well. Yes. It, uh, 
it's I think I think it's an incredibly exciting time and probably the first time in a long time that architecture um, on a very personal one-on-one -on -one level matters all of a sudden design and architecture suddenly have a bigger bearing on people's lives not that they didn't have the bearing before but it just wasn't as highlighted yes it wasn't as yeah I think you're right so, about that mm. Well, that's been a fascinating chat. I really, really enjoyed that. I love some of the things, you know, I, I kind of have this thing where there's a lot of sort of talk around, you know, womanhood and, and sisterhood of women and um, supporting women. And, you know, you come from a society where women have had a certain place and as you said you you couldn't necessarily just go and set up your practice without a man because it was this sort of setup and yet women in India are the ones who will bring India you know through into a new world they'll be the change makers well they already are and you come to a city like New York where it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a you know a Martian it makes no difference that's every, there's a place for everybody uh, but it takes doing that journey and then you you know your daughter's going to continue that journey and I, I love the a that from I think there's a rise in what I would call feminine power um, and I do a bit of trend reporting work and with that one of the things I see is this rise in feminine power and it's not um, feminism it's woman being woman um, and their true feminine selves and bringing that um, side of or balance to architecture and to design along this journey. Um, and we, I, I see a, a, a real shift and a change and a push forward with this. And it excites me. I think it's fantastic. And it means that men have to actually use their feminine energy to... Um, to be in that space as well. Whereas women typically would step into their masculine energy to be in the other space. Yes, um, I think that's true. Women feel more comfortable being women. You know, I never had yeah. to not apply makeup, wear jewelry or wear colorful clothes. I never had to wear yeah. black while going to construction site. And believe me, I'm very active at construction site. But uh, I would give the credit to Zaha Hadid for that, my hero. Uh, oh, she did amazing stuff. There's no doubt about I that. I think her femininity is definitely into play, the way she looks at things yes. and the curves she designs with and her insistence yep. on the form, you know, the, the dynamism. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. So I think if women are just allowed to, they're given jobs, awarded jobs fairly as men would be based on ability, I think you will see some changes. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think it's really, really brilliant. And fascinating stories also about um, the, you know, the, the, the changing of these buildings, you know, breaking them into more places and that our families have got slightly smaller, um, maybe with both working couples, things like that. I think, again, there's a lot of lessons to be taken from that. So for the audience, you know, look in your own cities and look at what's happening and see where the opportunity lies within that. If you're in this field of design, if you're just listening, um, look around and, and sort of see how this trend's shifting and how you can be a part of it and enjoy it and play with it. Um, because 
architecture is an interesting thing. It takes a while to get a building out of the ground and then it stands for quite a long time, um, ideally a very, very long time. And so you make a, an impact that has a lasting effect. Whereas, you know, something like clothing design has a, a, a short impact, but has a, a profound impact on the person wearing it. Um, you know, like it's an interesting part. If you think an architect might design a few hundred buildings if they were lucky in their in their lifespan, um, maybe even a thousand. But uh, if you were designing something like clothing again, you would design, you know, maybe a few hundred garments a year, more maybe, um, that would actually end up on people's backs and stuff. Or if you were designing um, household appliances or uh, you know, cutlery and, you know, these kinds of things, you, your generation of stuff is faster and it moves through quicker than it does in something like architecture. So there's a, a weight of responsibility yes. to yes. It is a, carry it forward. Right. So it takes longer time for your vision to come to fruition. Uh, yeah. That's for sure. And secondly, you know, if you're a newbie in the profession, it also takes you time to learn those skills to bring it to fruition. Uh, so true so so true so that is that yeah. is true and yes it is a very rewarding profession because you can see the results as opposed to someone working on wall street he may you know make great contributions to the financial industry but he doesn't see the results outright or he can't separate his results yes. from other people so yes architecture yes. is definitely very gratifying and yeah I, I remember the first day when i was working in someone's office and i contributed in a bathroom came together i'm like holy cow i designed that backsplash or it is you know that <laughs> sense of fascination and accomplishment is great so. i remember the same things i remember i used to be a swimsuit designer and i remember going to the beach one day and it was the first time i'd ever seen somebody other than the model oh, wow. you know like wearing my swimwear and i saw like two or three different pieces and I was like, wow, it was just amazing. And then to drive past the first house that I ever designed, the first full house, um, again, still holds a fascination to me. I, you know, I can drive past plenty now, but it's like fun still to drive around them and just look at what my journey's changed in that as well. Yes. Yes. And the people who we design for, for example, the financial yeah. commitment these people make is significant uh, to their life. And besides residential, we're also doing some other projects which are having an impact in the community. So seeing things like those, it's really gratifying to see that what you do and how it helps people on a daily basis, even though they may not know it. You know, In residential design, they know yeah. it, but other designs, they may not even know it, how that came to be. But that you made it happen, I think that is very satisfying. I, I so agree. I work from a, a, a sense of everything is designed. Now, it's either by nature or by humans. Yes. Nature, they pretty much get most of it right. Yes. Humans, we're still learning. And everything that we touch that a human is designed, whether it be, you know, the mouse, the, mm -hmm. the pad that it's on, or a pen we pick up, if it's well-designed, we almost don't notice it. Yes. Yes, Adrian. Well said. The, 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 yeah, those things <laughs> that that are so well designed that we don't even know that that's happened. Yeah, it feels so natural. Is, it just fits in. It just yeah. was meant to be. What's a big deal? It, 
exactly exactly and that's great design yes that's yes. great design i used to work in innovation and in innovation you know like the um so i worked with uh, airbus and a few other big companies like that where i was training them in innovative techniques and something that would always fascinate me was how simple great solutions are because they they take the hard they're the hardest to get to but they're so simple and so pared down that there is no way to change them. Yes, that's that's a challenge to are. make it simple without complicating yes. to make it simple. That's the hard part, but yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I really, really enjoyed it. We do. It was a fascinating journey, and I'm looking forward to being in New York. I'm. I'm when I next come to New York, I think I'm going to come. Uh, in about September so that uh, I can experience that dining in the streets. I don't want to be there in November because it might be freezing. Yes. <laughs> or, or we're still December. Um, but, yeah, like I'll, I'll be back to the States. I imagine it's probably actually even more than a year before we'll be allowed to um, go. I usually run an architectural tour or two while I'm uh, in America and uh, take people with me and show them around things. And I would love to catch up. I'd love to go and uh, we'll go and dine and absolutely look at some projects. I love going to site. It would be going great. To site yes, is really cool. So some of our projects yeah. would be in full swing at that point. We'd love that. I would love to have an opportunity to go to Tenement Museum and experience Orchard Street. Oh yeah, I'd love that. That would be sensational. And Orchard Street That'd is very really, chic, really cool. and it's the heart of you know the new Lower East Side, and you can see the old and the new, and we can have street side dining right there that, that would be great brilliant well thank you thank you thank you so enjoyed it and we will talk again soon i'm sure thank you adrian it was real fun richard's magic arrows is brought to you by the architect marketing institute clean simple sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, let's say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, well, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? and see if they follow you, see if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it, because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow 
and fire at will.